if you guys uh, missed last week, I encourage you guys to go back and check out the past messages because these things are kind of running together. And we're talking about um, the tough issues in scriptures uh, about women, regarding women. I love all the women that are here. This is like, the past few weeks has like been this invasion of women. It's awesome. Um, and uh, so uh, what I'm teaching from is a collaboration from my own studies and also a really great book that synthesizes a lot of this stuff. It's by Chris Vallotton and it's called Fashion to Rain. I highly recommend it. And uh, so you'll get some things, uh, actually a lot of things from, from that and uh, in addition to my own. So, um, so the, at the high level though, there's a lot of scripture that seems pretty crazy, scary, like what do we do with this, uh, particularly about women. And there's three particular ones I'm gonna give them to you. I'm gonna do just a quick review in about two minutes where we left off last week. And the first is 1 Corinthians 14. It says, the women are to keep silent in churches for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject to themselves. Just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. 1 Timothy 2. <clears throat> a, woman, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. 1 Corinthians, 5, 1 Corinthians 11, 5 and 7. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But it is, is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Let her cover her head. <laughs> and so here are like three of the, the most restrictive passages about uh, women. So last week we kind of studied these. And um, we studied about how in the Garden of Eden, uh, God made man and woman to co-reign in the garden. And he made them male and female and says, I'm going to let you, them, rule. And we also learned that male dominance against women came in the form of a curse after the fall. It says that man shall rule over you. And we examined at the cross how the cross was broken against man and woman. Now, there probably is one question maybe some of you guys have is like, well, is it really broken? And so that's like a deeper context of a question I probably don't have a lot of time to talk about because you might say, well, women still have birth and child or still have pain and child rearing, all those things. And, um, but there's other passages that we can triangulate how the curse is broken. And my favorite one is this is that in the Garden of Venus says that I will let them rule over the earth. Now, when you remember back when Satan is tempting Jesus, he takes him to the highest of the point and says, all authority, all dominion has been given to me. Symbolizing the curse when we had the fall of man that we surrendered masters and Satan became the master. And then what Jesus did before he left there says, I've given you all authority. So he's reclaimed the authority in our place here. We also uh, looked at how the church has been making three errors. And the first is how to understand and apply the Bible. We discovered that it's actually impossible to literally apply every word of God in the scriptures universally, literally, all the time. Now, I failed you in one little aspect because I gave you a couple different scriptures that all contradict. And um, what I didn't notice is a lot of you guys got scared. <laughs> and what I'm trying to say is that the word of God is true, Amen. But sometimes you need to look at the context for it to be understood what is true in that context. And then I gave you these conflicting verses just to point out that if you were to just cherry pick every word of, of, of the scriptures and try to literally apply it without any understanding of the context, you'd, you'd get them wrong. 
And so I'm, I'm not trying to have anybody be fearful of the scriptures. I am so confident more now than ever as I dive deep into these scriptures that they are true. But those passages I gave you, I just wanted to tell you guys, I'm, I'm sorry for not saying that a little more clear, that the Bible's not wrong, but that we need to understand context behind each challenging uh, scripture. Uh, we understand that when the word of God, um, we need to understand when the word of God is commentary or documentary. Meaning that uh, there's a lot of godly figures in the Bible who made big mistakes, and it's not like God came and like majorly rebuked them. And so we can't look at like, oh, well, Moses killed the Egyptian, and Abraham took another wife to have another child. We can't take behaviors of biblical figures and just automatically say, well, that should work for me. Um, and then finally, that we, we need to understand that sometimes God uses narratives of the day topics and issues of the day to make a statement about something else in principle. We talk about how in Colossians, there's actually a lot of passages about slavery. And God used the instance, the narrative, the cultural uh, situation at the time of slavery to talk about authority. And he, he gave you all the different contexts for how we should honor those above us in authority and those below us in authority. And so slavery was the narrative, but we understand that the Civil War was largely fought by a lot of Christians who thought that God was mandating slavery and gave us permission for slavery. And obviously all of us think that's kind of silly now. So we need to understand when God is using the narrative of a situation to give us truth. So that's where we left off. And tonight I hope to unlock some more revelation on these passages, these tough ones. I don't think we're going to get to them quite yet because we have a couple places to go. And I want to give you four more keys into helping unlock these challenging scriptures and these topics. And the first one is understand the cultural context of the time. Number two is looking at how Jesus broke the law as he engaged with women. Number three is recognizing the significant role that women played with Jesus. And number four, understand the context of the epistles or Paul's letters. So that's where we're going to go. So key number one to helping us unlock the revelation here in this is understanding the cultural context of the time. We have the scriptures written in the first century. Let's take a look at what century, first century living looked like for women. Let's talk about the Gentile women. Usually Gentiles are non-Jewish women in Macedonia and Thessalonica and other places. But Gentile women were much more powerful and respected in their cultures than women who were in Judaism. In Macedonia, women built temples, they founded cities, they engaged armies, they held fortresses, they served as regents and co-rulers. Men admired their wives and named cities after them. Thessalonica is actually the name after a woman. And they were giving inheritable civil rights. In Acts chapter 16, a Macedonian businesswoman named Lydia founded the church in Philippi after Paul led her to Christ. In Egypt... Women were legally equal to men. They could buy, sell, borrow, and lend money. They also could initiate divorce. They could pay taxes. They could petition governments. And the oldest daughter could be a legitimate heir. So that's the Gentile females in the first century. First century Roman women didn't have as much uh, uh, long of a leash. <laughs> and, and the first century Roman women, they... Uh, were more restricted than the Macedonians and the Egyptians, but their authority from the father was paramount. Like a father figure, that was like the big deal. And a Roman girl was sold in the name of the hands of her future husband. Both daughters and boys were educated. Uh, boys to 17, girls at 13, when girls were expected to marry. 
Roman women could not conduct business in their own name, but they could have someone else uh, serve as their agent or their proxy. Uh, Women did not have the right to inheritance nor the right to divorce. They did not have the right to vote or hold public office. And in virtually all first century Gentile cultures, both men and women exercised leadership equally in places of worship and religion. Now, first century Judaism. Uh, First century Israel, in other words, saw women as possessions. So we have the most freedom, kind of freedom, Judaism, Jewish culture, women were possessions. No people group was more oppressed than women. They were second-class citizens on the same level as slaves. They had virtually no rights, no respect, and no voice. They were property of men. They were allowed little or no formal education. Boys would go to school, but girls would have to stay home with the mother and learn how to keep home. I have a few notes here about first century Jewish women to show on the screen. A few restrictions that they had. First, they were forbidden from speaking with men in public. They were required to wear a veil whenever they left their homes. If a woman was caught unveiled, it was grounds for divorce. They were responsible for the house, the kids, and served at the will of whatever the request of the husband. That sounds kind of nice. Just kidding. If a guest came over, if a guest came over, this is really important. If a guest came over... That's awesome. <laughs> I knew I, wa- I wasn't being funny. Something else was being funny. That's great. I love you, Derek. <laughs> That's great. If a guest came over, the woman had to eat in another room. In the presence of a guest, a woman could not even be in the same place as a man. Fathers arranged all marriages, which now having a daughter sounds like a genius idea. Polygamy was actually legal for men, but not legal for women. If a husband wanted to, for any reason, they could divorce their wife. They, the women could not vote and had no political voice whatsoever. They could not even be a witness in a court case. They were not allowed to even read the scriptures, the Torah, the Bible that they had in the time. They were even not allowed to read it. And they were not even allowed to pray at meals or recite a psalm. That's the cultural context as we open the scriptures and look at these days of Jesus and how he responded. And to say that women were restricted is an understatement. This was the cultural backdrop of the modern day when which Jesus set foot, which is the second key that we need to have when we unlock these passages. This is that Jesus broke law and tradition and empowered women. When you think about that entire list of what culture was when Jesus stepped foot, and every passage you read about Jesus and a woman, you'll find Jesus breaking a law. Every one of you should like, who's interested in this topic should take that little printout and put it in your Bible and then parallel it to the interactions with Jesus. I'm going to give you a few things to give you an example for and help you save the time. The first is that Jesus routinely engaged women in public routinely engaged them in public. It was never, he was never allowed through Jewish law or cultural tradition to ever speak to a woman in public. But yet we have people like Mary Magdalene, Martha, and the woman at the well that Jesus openly engaged with. Mary and Martha, there's this story where Jesus came over to Martha's house, and so Martha's in the kitchen, and Mary should have been in the kitchen by Jewish law preparing the meal. And Mary was out with Jesus. Mary was learning from Jesus. 
Let's like break five laws at once. Not only is she supposed to be serving, she's supposed to be in private and she's not to learn nor talk to a man. We're breaking four laws at once right here. Another fascinating story is the woman that was hemorrhaging who basically had a period um, that was lasting for 12 years. I'm not a female, but I know that even that's terrible. So <laughs> that's horrible. So here's what's interesting about that challenge with, and, and what a humiliating, humiliating condition. But according to law, to Jewish law, when a woman was on her period, she was considered unclean. And according to law, during her period, she was to be quarantined, not to see or to touch or to see anybody until her cycle was done. So this woman was on it for 12 years. How long can you be quarantined? And more specifically, anyone who touched a woman who was on her menstrual cycle was then considered unclean for seven days. And then they were not to be seen in public either. They were to be quarantined. Are you capturing this? So if you're on your period, you are quarantined. If you touch anybody, they're quarantined and you both are unclean and it's terrible. So here's this woman who is out in public and she's seeing Jesus and she's trying as hard as she can to remain hidden. Do you know it's like that she's like doing this in the crowd? Well, obviously now it makes sense now that we know the Jewish law. And she's hiding and so she, all she wanted to do is just, she didn't want to touch Jesus, but she knew she can just touch his robe. And then she tried to scurry off. She's trying to be discreet because she was breaking all these laws. And she touched him and she was healed. And then she tried to sneak away out of the public eye. And Jesus caught her attention. Again, breaking the law. And instead, if Jesus was following all the Jewish law, he would have said, first, woman, why are you out of your house? And two, why did you touch me? Because now I'm unclean. He didn't do that. He made her testimony famous. He brought her forward. And he basically was letting women everywhere know that I don't care what the religious leaders tell you. As far as I'm concerned, women are clean. Right there, Jesus, so public. And no wonder the religious leaders are so outraged with Jesus at this. We, we bypass these stories thinking that they're, oh, they're just, you know, some, oh, cool, a woman touched his robe, very neat, you know, whatever. But now we understand the significance of it. It's incredible. Jesus oftentimes revealed the most profound statements about his purpose and his identity to women directly. An example is John chapter 11 to Martha. Jesus said to her, this is the most plain, the, the, the most plain, clear words that Jesus has ever spoken about who he is and his purpose. To a woman, no less, who should not be speaking to him or learning. Look what he says. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to them, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. Jesus is teaching women who have been starved of education, truth for generations. There's the story of Jesus having dinner with the Pharisee at his house, right? And he's there and they're having like this grand old dinner and this is like one of the top rulers. And all of a sudden a prostitute comes in to the house knowing that Jesus was there and she comes in weeping and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And the Pharisee is so disgusted because now the woman, again, breaking law, and by, according to tradition, a woman of that caliber should not even be acknowledged, not even noticed. When you have committed adultery, and this woman is a prostitute, 
you are not even to acknowledge their existence. So here comes a woman in. And so we know by law that what the Pharisee did is he obeyed the law because he doesn't want to break the law. So he turns around and he refuses to participate in this and lets Jesus kind of do his deal. Look at what Jesus says to the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7, 44. And right here, Jesus had just given him the parables of forgiveness. And this is what Jesus says. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Basically says, Mr. Pharisee, Simon, turn around, look at her. Look at her. Inside the Pharisee's house, do you see her? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Or the woman at the well. She was the first person in recorded history in which Jesus reveals that he's the Messiah. And then Jesus, upon that revelation, sends the woman, everyone say woman, sent the woman out to all the Samaritan, uh, Samaritan towns and villages. And look what it says in John chapter 4. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman... It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. You know the story of the woman at the well. She had had five husbands and was currently living with her boyfriend. And Jesus, upon enlightening her that he is the Messiah, sends her out and a whole entire city got saved. And you can even see in the pretext of them being saved, they're acknowledging that they should not even be listening to the woman because it's against the law. But they said that because of you, and now we hear for ourselves, we believe. Now, how do we balance that with the passage in 1 Timothy that says that we do not allow women to teach? Now, universally applied, many Samaritans would have never found Christ if that would have been universally applied. And some people want to distinguish this story from actually teaching. And you can define spiritual roles however you want, but when a man is learning from a woman, she is teaching him. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. When people follow a woman, she is leading them, period. Jesus' thoughts on morality and marriage were also radical and against cultural and Jewish law. Morality, consider this. In the book of Proverbs, there are hundreds of verses that warn men about promiscuous women. The book of Proverbs is like warning about some girl out there, you know, like, or men, all women. Like, it's a big warning to all the promiscuous women. Not one time uh, is in the book of Proverbs is a woman warned about an immoral man. But here's something interesting. Not once. In all the Gospels, does Jesus specifically warn a woman about sensuality or immorality? Even when confronted with immoral women, he never confronts them. In fact, he did the opposite. Look at this, Matthew 5, you know this passage. You have heard that it says, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Not only is almost the passages in the Old Testament absent from the immoral man, Jesus comes and makes it about, you know what about adultery? If you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And he makes it about the man for the very first time. And Jesus puts the responsibility back on the man for not watching over his heart with lust. Jesus did the same thing with marriage. Instead of it being about husbands owning a wife and a wife being a possession and essentially being a slave, Jesus said this, which seems very plain and general to us, but look at this in Matthew 19, verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Then he says that if they divorce their wives and marry someone else, that they are committing adultery. Remember, in this time, you can divorce your wife even if you don't like the way she did the dishes. And Matthew chapter 19, verse 10 here again says, The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Translation, Jesus says, It's two becoming one. Essentially saying, she's not your slave. You're one flesh. She's not your possession. You're one flesh. If you divorce her for any reason, you commit adultery and you yourself have sinned, even though she has not sinned. And the men, in other words, are saying, we're not sure if we even want to marry if we can't have a slave for a wife. (laughs) Jesus is rebuking the very thought that getting married buys you a servant. Now, the, the message I'm not giving you tonight, which is a totally different mes- message, is the balance of is a godly marriage that has the man dying for himself and the wife submitting. It's a co-equal, submissive relationship. That's a different message altogether. I know that. I'm not being ignorant about marriage. But we are not talking about co-submitting. We're talking about rulership over one to make one the servant. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you're looking for a slave, then, then you're going to you know, have a tough time because I've kind of broken that curse. And they're like, well, maybe we shouldn't get married. And I think Jesus is like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't get married. <laughs> Other culturally offensive positions that Jesus took in conjunction with women. Jesus told three parables in Luke chapter 15 about the kingdom of God and the goodness of God and how God accepts sinners, all right? Now, the second parable that Jesus gave in that context was the story of a woman who had 10 silver coins and loses one of them. And she lights a lamp, sweeps the entire house and finds the expensive coin. And she's so excited that she invites all of her friends to the house to celebrate. Now, in this lost coin or in this parable, The lost coin represents the sinners in whom Jesus is looking for and the Pharisees are more or less complaining about. But who does the woman represent in this parable? God. Do you know how offensive it is in that time for Jesus to give a parable where God is the woman in the parable? I don't know if you guys remember the shack that caused a big uproar. Whoa, Jesus is this, you know. Same deal. Jesus personified the attributes of God in woman form in the parable to make the point about God. I don't think these are by accident. I don't think Jesus is like, they won't care if I use a woman as God. No, he clearly did. You'll also be interested to know that there's only four people in the Bible that it says that Jesus loved explicitly. John, Lazarus, Martha, Mary. Same number of people. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. (laughs) Also, something we take for granted is think about the backstory of Jesus' birth. 
born of a virgin? I mean, like we know that, but back in the day, you're like, come on, really? Right? Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was 30. Meaning that for 31 years, basically, right? Because he didn't reveal himself in his miracles until he was 31-ish. That for about 31 or 32 years, that the uh, identity of Mary, his mother, was a woman who had an affair and had a child out of wedlock. There was nothing else to back it up, right? We know because we have the whole entire story, but 31 years, Mary was under this huge shadow of like, I know I'm not crazy. I know I didn't sleep with Joseph, but I got pregnant somehow. And 31 long years waiting for this is eventually going to be the son of God. And everyone's going to feel really awkward when he says, I am. <laughs> and I'm going to go down there and say, see, you know, like you, you can, you know that Mary had a day of redemption. <laughs> Think about that. That Mary eventually had a final day of redemption about that she was not lying, that she did not have an affair. And even the Pharisees make mention of this. Check this out. This is a passage that we, we gloss over. It's John chapter 8, verse 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. So Jesus said, and they said to Jesus, we were born not of fornication. We have one father, God. Since you're right there, they're saying, we're not the result of a whore, a prostitute, an affair. Right there. They're rubbing it in his face. And we understand that. Can you imagine the compassion that Jesus' mother, Mary, had for women that were caught, that were sexually promiscuous, that they were stuck, they had um, been publicly ruined out of issues within sexuality? You can imagine the, the heart that she had for them. Number three is recognizing the significant role that women actually played in the story of Jesus. Luke chapter eight, I'm gonna read this to you. Soon afterwards, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The 12 are with him, verse two, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sickness, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of that guy, Herod's wife, and Susanna, many others who were contributing, everyone say contributing, to their support out of their private means. Right here we see women that are empowering their ministry financially, but it's interesting, the word that's used there for contributing is pretty fascinating. It's daikoneo, if I'm saying that correctly. And it means to serve, to minister, to care for, or as deacons. Dun, dun, dun. Fascinating. The same word used in Acts chapter 6, when the apostles chose seven men to serve, diconeos, tables. This later became the foundation of qualification for deacons, translated in Greek as diconeo in the early church. Now, I'm not saying that these women were deacons, but I am saying that Jesus traveled and ministered with women, maybe just without the title. Then let's think about the final hours and the most significant event in all of history before the resurrection. A few things to notice. It was only men who took part in the murder of Jesus, not a single woman. 
It was a man who betrayed Jesus and male soldiers who arrested Jesus. It was Saiphus, the high priest, the scribes, and the elders, all men, who accused Jesus. It was Pilate, the governor, and Herod, the king, who judged him. It was the Roman soldiers who beat him and the Roman centurions who ordered him nailed to the cross. It was a male prisoner who cursed him. It was the male soldiers who gambled for his garments and male guards who entombed him. And it was male disciples who denied him. Did you see any pattern? Now, on the other hand, it was a woman at Simon's house who poured expensive perfume on his body to prepare him for burial. It was Pilate's wife who had given... Uh, her a God-given dream and tried to convince her husband to release Christ. It was his mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, who stayed with him through the dark night of his soul. And only two women were there the day of his, bur- of his burial, and just one faithful grieving saint there to c- congratulate Jesus when he, ta-da, I'm here. You guessed it, a woman. Now with this kind of track record, it's really good that we exclude women from all involvement in ministry. I mean... Yeah. Clearly, I'm just teasing. Then, the very first news that Jesus had risen, how did it get spread? Women. Two women. Jesus, in his infinite humor, decided, (laughs) I'm going to have the women teach the men that I'm back and send them. Right there, if you are a scholar of the day, you know that Christ is risen because the first words were carried by a woman. Because you know that that's such an impossible feat. You know that that was breaking every violation, every tradition. No woman should be going anywhere saying anything about any God to any man. And so we know that it's undeniable that Jesus was made known by two women. And therefore, you can argue that that was such a radical event that was so known, it was so popularized that nobody disputes it because it was so incredible. And the men, disciples, they didn't even believe it. They're like, really? And Jesus is like, I've only been telling you this for like three years. But there's no disputing that Jesus taught women, befriended women, traveled with women, and ministered with women. This is a bold cultural statement that is in direct violation of all Judaism law. You guys getting it? Now the obvious question before my final point is this. Why weren't there female disciples? It's a great question. Now taking in account the short time of three and a half years in which Jesus ministered, I believe it would have been impossible for society to shift its mindset to view women as leaders when for generations they had been simply valued as possessions. For example, can you imagine an African-American male running for president three years after the Emancipation Proclamation? Away, away. How about, um, can you envision a, a black person leading a white church in 1950? Probably not. Of course, these are ridiculous objections now, but they kind of perfectly illustrate that point, don't they not? That we, of course, look at history and like, oh, of course, no, we had to have time, but yet so many people are quick to judge Jesus that he empowered women, but yet there were male disciples, but I think that we just kind of have to give them a little bit of slack there for the times. That's just my thought. Last point here is understanding the context of the epistles understanding the context of the epistles. The epistles are the letters that Paul uh, wrote or the the letters that were written. 
Um, and the context of a verse determines its definition. As I try to clean up before, that context empowers us with the knowledge of what is actually being said. Now, just some high-level details about the Bible. The, the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament, it's broken up into two sections, obviously. There are 252 commands and laws in the Old Testament. But the New Testament, even the Ten Commandments are reduced to two. You guys know this passage, Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Referring to all 252. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law. Everyone say whole law. On these two, the whole law depends in all the prophets. Now the Old Testament has 252 commands. How many? 252. Here's what's fascinating. Judaism had 613 commandments and laws. Why the difference? Well, there's 400 years of silence between the last book of the Old Testament and when Jesus stepped foot. And people get busy. They're like, we're kind of bored and we want God to give us some new burdens. And so basically the Jewish culture, they began to go and reinterpret and rehash and they try to re-extract. We need more oppression on us, God, so let's invite all these 400 more laws on us. It's basically what happened. And so while waiting for the Messiah, they just kept on inventing laws. And Jesus is like, they all boil down to two. You've been wasting all your time here. Sorry to save you the trouble. Now, the Bible has 40 authors. Everyone say 40. The Bible has 40 authors written over a period of 1,450 years in several countries, multiple cultures, and in various situations. And the Old Testament and the New Covenant, between them all, only one man seems to restrict women. The great Apostle Paul. One man. Now, if God wanted to restrict half the entire population from leading, teaching uh, men, um, he probably would have used more than just one man. It's kind of like a big deal that the rest of the Bible is virtually silent, that there are 39 authors that kind of left the subject alone. But here's what's interesting is that Paul writes to nine different churches and leaders, but only restricts women in three of them. Paul writes nine letters to nine cities, restricts three of them. Why does he restrict some and place limits on them. For example, Paul writes to Timothy, the leader of the church in Ephesus, and tells him that women are not to exercise authority over a man. Paul writes 16 chapters, though, to the Romans and does not make a single mention, a single restrictive comment about women. In fact, the first person that Paul greets in the book of Romans is a girl named uh, Prisca, Prisca, P-R-I-S-C-A, whatever, along with her husband, Aquila, and he calls them both fellow workers, which is the exact phrase that Paul uses when addressing Timothy, Titus, Luke, and Mark. Another, Paul writes to the Corinthians that a woman is not allowed to speak in church, yet his letter to the Galatians has no restrictions at all. In fact, here's what Galatians says in chapter 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You guys catching this? Now, three really quick things to remember in light of this. Most of these epistles, 
We have it all, right? And we think they're all written to us, but actually most of the New Testament was written to specific people, often regarding specific situations. The exceptions of the book uh, of the New Testament are James, Jude, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Just in case you want to email me, I'm like, not all of them. I get it. <laughs> occasionally, everyone say occasionally. occasionally. Paul would say, share this letter with others. Now, how many places did Paul restrict women? How many cities? Three. three. Do you notice that those three letters, he did not say share these letters? Number two is that most churches only had their own letter, but they didn't have all of them. We have all of them, right? But it's important to know that we have all of them, actually except for one. Paul wrote one letter that we do not have, which would be crazy if we found, right? That would be wild. Um, but no church in the first century would have all of them. I don't know what year, does anybody know what year like all of them got assembled? It was like hundreds of years later. But not a single church that Paul is writing to would ever have all of them that have just their peace. The church of Thessalonica would probably not have read the letter to the Corinthians, nor the Galatians, and vice versa. Paul's letters are written to specific people. And the third thing to remember about the epistles is most of them were written in response to questions. Sometimes Paul states the questions, sometimes he infers them, and sometimes he just rambles on. He doesn't have the reply and then like include the original copy below. I mean, he's like pen, quill, right? Be a little bit, yeah, you wrote me like a long paragraph. Let me quote it here. No, he, he's trying to save time because he's writing a lot. But therefore, we can conclude that we're not to superimpose God's situational counsel over universal circumstances and have it be redemptive all the time. Let me read that again. We are not to impose God's situational counsel, meaning specific situations, over universal circumstances and have it be redemptive in every situation. We have millions of copies of each letter addressed to a particular person, a particular church, um, and directed, and we, we have it to all believers all around the world now. And this has provided us amazing insight into the way that God thinks about certain situations in their context. We have these amazing letters to give us revelation about what God thinks in their context. The problem arises when well-meaning people try and take God's situational counsel and try and enforce it universally. Are you guys all with me? Now remember, Paul wrote to nine cities. How many cities did he restrict women? The first letter was to the Corinthians that he restricted women. The second was to Timothy, the leader of the church of Ephesus. And the third uh, is to Titus, the leader of, of the church in the island of Crete. Corinth, Ephesus, Crete. What three things, or I'm sorry, what one thing would all three of those cities have in common? You ready for this? We're gonna end here. They all worshiped female deities. More next time. Love you guys. I'm listening to Eric preach, and he's answering questions that sometimes people have asked me in the past.